What do you want? To save you, Mr. Thorne. So Christ will forgive me. What do you know about my son? Everything. And what is that? I saw its mother. You saw my wife? I saw its mother. You're referring to my wife. It's mother, Mr. Thorne. This is blackmail, then come out and say it. What is it that you're trying to say? His mother was a... Everything all right, sir? You sounded strange. The door was locked. I want this gentleman escorted out of here. Okay, let's go. Accept Christ each day. Drink his blood. scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Fear of God podcast. This might be on the calendar one of our favorite episodes every year. It is, in fact, our Halloween week episode. So yes, welcome to the Fear of God. This is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is longtime pal, three years running co-host, Reed Lackey. He was here a minute ago, but randomly he was he was kind of off in the distance and he yelled and he said, look at me, Nathan, it's all for you. And then he was gone. I don't, I mean, I like things that are for me, but I don't know what that means. So hopefully, hopefully he's okay. Maybe, who knows? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a Halloween gift or something. I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. While we wait for him, yes, friend, you are at the Fear of God podcast. Here at the Fear of God, we find the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us. I'm glad you're here. I'm sure when he returns, Reed will be glad you're here. In the meantime, while we wait for him, just a few bullet points. Happy Halloween! This is amazing. Love this time of year. One, please, if you haven't, go leave us a rating or a view on iTunes, wherever it is that you consume your podcasts. Um, Leave us a rating or a review. Let us know you did that. We love to know that. iTunes, frankly, is the only one we really know how to pay attention to. Um, But if there are other means and you can leave reviews there, let us know you did that there too. And we will name drop you somehow. We'll make it happen. Um, Thank you to those of you who have done that thus far. Additionally, um, as referenced pretty much weekly at this point, shout out Jacob Hunt. He is the resident fear of God illustrator extraordinaire. You Yes, you can go to tpublic.com, search the fear of God podcast, all one word, and make yourself a merch perch. Buy yourself a Frank and Nathan magnet. 
a Dr. Riedenstein magnet, a Frankenstein 2020 presidential candidacy t-shirt. It's pretty awesome. All of this stuff can be yours. Reed, you're here. Hello. You're, you're here, buddy. You're here. I have Reed. come to podcast with thee. Okay, I can appreciate this new intonation you're using, this new dialect, whatever it is, but it's happening. It's Halloween. <laughs> it's Halloween. Reed, Happy it Halloween. is Halloween. I'm so Happy excited. Happy Halloween to you too, I'm my friend. I'm so excited. This is my, one of my favorite weeks of the year. This is one of my favorite times of the now, year. It's great. What's really fun about this literal moment we're having right here is we're recording prior to Halloween, we are in fact recording prior to the Rouse family visiting Disney World for a week for to celebrate oh, my 40th yes. birthday. That's that's happening. Right. Um, we're also by then mm-hmm. this will be pretty this will be pretty public. So I guess I can say it here and it'll be oh. fun. Um, so we are we're 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 theming our our Halloween costumes this year, Riri. Really? I sent you a, I sent, I sent you a photo. Yeah, of two you sure of, did. Two of two. So there are five people. Okay. In my nuclear immediate family, um, three of I have three children, and not three of my children, as if I have four. <laughs> but um, I have three children, and then my wife. Now the littlest of my children right now will probably not be a part of this theme because of what it might require of her but it will make sense in a moment so yes we are doing an into the spider-verse theme that um, is amazing it's really i awesome. am the, the only time i could ever in continuity play peter parker is when he has a gut right like that okay. is okay. the peter parker that i can play <laughs> so i'm gonna be you know peter b parker okay from into right. the spider-verse all right uh, our oldest our oldest is spider gwen our middle is uh penny parker which has fun oh, synchrony to real life. That's awesome. Those, those of you who know my family. And uh, my wife is going to be playing Doc Ock in her lab attire. Wow. So, oh, yeah. my gosh. So that's we're gonna, awesome. We're going to do that at Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party in Disney World. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a grand old time. That is amazing. Oh, Isn't that fun? Man, that is so fun. I Okay, so at the moment... I am still putting together my Halloween costume in case. As in who or what? No, I, or like the pieces? Yes, I'm putting together the pieces. Uh, I am intentionally going to hold it back because I have not been able to assemble all the all the pieces. And in case I can't do it, I don't want to put myself out there like well, that. But uh, if, no, if, if, if I manage to, trust me, everybody will know. Everybody will know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm very, very excited for your Halloween costume, man. That's awesome. That's very, Thank very you. cool. Yeah, this is our this is our favorite time of year here at The Fear of God. Hopefully you've been posting all of your Comfort in the Creepy, hashtag Comfort in the Creepy. Hopefully you've been sharing all of your Halloween costume, Halloween decorations, all of your fun festivities. Uh, if you have not done so, then when this episode airs, you still have a few days because Halloween's on Thursday this year, so you've at least got a couple of days uh, to share with us all the joyful things that you are doing to celebrate this wonderfully creepy holiday. Um, Nathan. 
Great. So, uh, listeners noticed, and we uh, we called out. Uh, there was there was a bit of a unique flavor to last week's particular episode. Um, <laughs> oh God. So so in brief, we recorded an entire episode in our standard format about Dario Argento's Suspiria, um, and as I uh, declared to you guys last week, pr- uh, prior to the episode, that uh, unfortunately when we got to the end of it, uh, there were some audio glitches that we did not discover until. Until late in the recording, and uh, unfortunately, the entire conversation was lost to time due to scheduling conflicts uh, and due to just the the eminence of release time. We were not able to re-record the whole episode. So, what you got instead, which you hopefully enjoyed. Hi, everybody. Just a quick tag in here. At the time that Nathan and I recorded this, we were not quite sure uh, what we would be able to do, if anything, with the Suspiria episode. So just wanted to tag in here very quickly to say thank you to Bill Oberst Jr. for allowing us to bump up his conversation and replace our conversation about Suspiria for last week. Um, But uh, we will have some new announcements for you in the coming weeks about how we plan to make up for that Suspiria episode, not only for the 1977 Dario Argento version, but also for the 2018 remake. So stay tuned to that. Thank you very much again to Bill Oberst Jr. And now uh, here's the rest of the show. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to change a bit of our formatting out. Uh, we are going to pour a cold one out for our What You Watching segment because we are going <laughs> to skip over that. And uh, in lieu of what we would normally do as watch and re-listen to, we're going to recount down what was most essentially lost from last week, and that is your favorite horror films of the 1970s, numbers 20 through 11. So uh, we are going to very, very briefly... You know what? what? To keep it to keep you and I on your toes, yeah. Reed, why don't you do the evens? Ooh, you want to do that? I'm going to do okay? Yes. Yes. Totally fine. Totally fine. Okay. So I'm going to do the evens. Uh, we're going to, yes. Okay. So, um, wow. I love it. <laughs> it's like that music just going to get faster and faster and faster. That's the lemonade. <laughs> so, um, okay. So counting down, uh, we're going to go a, a bit brisk here, but your number 20 is a film called don't Look Now, directed by Nicholas Rogue, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie from 1973. I had a very freaky experience the first time I watched this film and have not revisited it since. Uh, so I remember it as very freaky, and you have voted it as your number 20 as your favorite horror films of the 1970s. Coming in at number 19 is Tales from the Crypt, directed by Freddie Francis, starring... Peter Grand Moff Tarkin Cushing and Joan Collins, which released in 1972. This is one of my very, very favorite films. If you've not seen it, it's an anthology film. It holds up remarkably well. Please seek it out. Number 18 is Salem's Lot, directed for television by Toby Texas Chainsaw Massacre Hooper, starring David Soule, Bonnie Bedelia, and featuring Fred Willard. Hey, what happened? And Jeffrey Lewis, who's one of my uh, favorite character actors. It's based, of course, on the novel by Stephen King from 1979. A very good adaptation, made for TV, so temper your expectations there. And it is three hours long, but I think there's some scenes in it that remain remarkably effective and very, very creepy and scary. So Salem's Lot was your number 18. Coming in at number 17, we know this one well. That is the Don Coscarelli-directed Phantasm, which we featured as our first entry in I Love the 70s, not 
at this point, three whole episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Go back and check that episode out. It was surprising to us where it went. We think it'll be surprising to you. That was number 17. Number 16 is The Hills Have Eyes, directed by Wes Craven, starring D. Wallace and Michael Berryman from 1977. Michael Berryman, probably one of the most famous faces in horror, most specifically because he's plastered on the cover of this film. Uh, I have more to say about that in a couple of minutes, but I'll leave it at there for right now and put a pin in that. Coming in at number 15, we covered it during our Funny or Die series, and that is Young Frankenstein, directed by Mel Brooks, <laughs> starring Gene Wilder, Terry Garr, Marty Feldman, and Cloris Leachman as Frau Bluhoch. <laughs> and also Peter Boyle. Um, yes, shout out to Funny or Die series and when we guested or had as our guest uh, literary correspondent Meredith Curran. And this film released back in 1974. Moving to our number 14 is the directorial debut of Wes Craven from 1972. It is The Last House on the Left. I'm going to be very brief here. But I do want to uh, kind of explain why in a series on the 70s, uh, especially one featuring two Wes Craven films in your top 20, why we are not covering either of these films. Just in in brief mention, um, first of all, you can kind of blame me because I am not a very big fan of either of these two films. The other thing is uh, that Last House on the Left features... Uh, some pretty graphic depictions of uh, an an assault, both emotional and physical, uh, an extended sequence, uh, both emotional and physical, of two young girls. And uh, just to be honest with you, like in defense of Wes Craven there, and I'll I'll make this as brief as possible, in defense of Wes Craven there, he said that he depicted it the way he did and as graphically as he did because um, he was tired of westerns and uh, war movies basically uh, brushing past the gravity of death and he wanted to dig into that a little bit and 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 allow the prospect of death to be as disturbing and upsetting as it was and so uh, that's why he filmed it the way he did but to be candid with you I was not really ready to revisit that film for a conversation Um, but if you're interested in The Last House on the Left uh, it is a film uh, that is based on an older film by Ingmar Bergman called The Virgin Spring, which is much more palatable, if I can use that word, uh, and deals with the same exact themes. It's almost the exact same story. Um, So uh, if you're interested in that particular story uh, but are not sure you're ready for the extremity of that film, then I would highly recommend Ingmar Bergman's film The Virgin Spring. But you did vote in The Last House on the Left as your number 14 favorite horror film of the 70s. Coming in at number 13, it is directed by David Lynch of Twin Peaks fame. It is the 1977 film Eraserhead, of which I know nothing. (laughs) This is such a blind spot for me. I feel like such a horror poser because after all these years, I have yet to see this film. So uh, I need to shape up. I I need to watch it. I need to see it. Um, Number coming in at number 12 is a film we covered last Christmas. From 1974, that's right, you guessed it, it is Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark. Did you know that this is the Bob Clark who directed A Christmas Story? Did you know that? Get a, get out of here. It is, it is. D- the Bob Clark, direct, the, uh, director of A Christmas Story. Also directed, I feel like I, 
I feel like I just received a major award or something. <laughs> it's a major award. Fragile. <laughs> so uh, starring Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder. Uh, again, we had an extensive conversation about it last Christmas, that from 1974, and it was your number 12. Read. Read. Oh, yes. Coming in at number 11. So good. We featured it twice. <laughs> uh, is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Philip Kaufman, starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, and Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. We featured this one two weeks ago. It was our second entry in I Love the 70s, and we do love Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We do indeed. We do indeed. So that was what we know is take number two, what you now are experiencing for the first time, of your favorite horror films number 20 through 11. So now, here it is, the moment you've all been waiting for, your top 10 favorite horror films of the 1970s. There's going to be so many of these that we have already covered. So if you're interested in hearing our thoughts on it, there's a lot of deep cut catalog that you can go back into. Um, diving right in, starting at number 10, it is Suspiria, directed by Dario Argento from 1977. Uh, again, we we uh, extended to you all that we could of our conversation from that <laughs> <laughs> last week. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that, and that was your number 10. I do want to throw in here, Reed, just because I ultimately, at this moment, have no clue what is able to be salvaged of that episode. Do want to give a proper, in the event it fell through, last week, shout out to VizArt Video in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I did rent the hard copy DVD and man had a great anecdotal story about this whole thing in that episode. <laughs> um, but shout out Vizart. You will be seeing me again and be featured on the fear of God in various forms coming in at number nine read mm -hmm. is the film we are discussing today. It is the one and only Omen. And by one and only, I mean, there are sequels, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, directed by, I presume, uh, uh, he of Superman fame, Richard Donner. True that. Um, which is the subject of our episode today and released in 1976. Yes, we'll have a lot more to say about that in a few moments. Number eight, your favorite horror films of the 1970s. Number eight is The Wicker Man, directed by Robin Hardy from 1973. We featured it on episode 55. Um, and we do know, Reed, that The Wicker Man is one of your favorite movies to dance to. So, you know. Around the Maple every yeah. summer. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, boy. So, number seven on your top ten horror films of the 1970s listeners is He Really Just Wants a Hug, Alien. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Ridley Scott, it is 1979's first entry in the Xenomorph saga, that of Alien, also featured at episode 39 of The Fear of God. Man, it's amazing that in this list, a film as masterful and wonderful as Alien lands at number seven. That gives you an idea of the heavy hitters that are coming, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so number six is Dawn of the Dead from 1978, directed by George Romero. Now, you may ask, wait a minute. You've never covered that. Why are you not covering that right now? And the simple fact is because it is unavailable to stream anywhere legally, and the DVD is so long out of print that copies go for 150 and 200 bucks a pop. So, due to the very difficult 
exclusive and rare opportunity to see the film, we decided uh, not to cover it because we figured probably if you hadn't already seen it, you would really wouldn't be able to. Uh, the remake, however, directed by Zack Snyder, was our episode 105. So number six, Dawn of the Dead from 1978, directed by George Romero. Coming in at number five, uh, featured as our very first Quarterly King, what has come to be one of our absolute favorite formats, is directed by Brian De Palma, starring Sissy Spacek and some guy last name Travolta. Uh, <laughs> that is Carrie. Dun, dun, dun. What a great and movie. that's a wonderful, wonderful film. Number four. Dun, dun. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, directed by Steven Spielberg from 1975, it is the one and only Jaws, your number four. It was also featured on our episode 94 of The Fear of God. Excellent, fantastic film. Coming in at number three, uh, in fact, directed by Mr. Toby Hooper, it is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, released in 1974. It is also episode 56 of the fear of God. I love the annotated version of this list. It's really fun. <laughs> well, I tried to help you out as much as I could. Um, okay, so number two. Hurt my heart a little bit that it's not number one, but I'll concede to the actual number one. Number two, directed by William Friedkin, my favorite film of all time from 1973, It Is the Exorcist. It was our featured episode number 25 on the fear of God uh, so early in our recording because the writer William Peter Blatty had just recently passed away. Um, I was wondering if this was going to make number one. It just missed out, but I'll concede to the number one, which what was that number one, Nathan? Well, you know what, Reed? You know what? Just because I want one day you to be able to say to me, Nathan, you're a good man. <laughs> uh, knowing that we aren't three years into this thing without you, uh, I'm, and, and it only makes sense that you should be the one to deliver this particular and any number one best of a decade. So I'm going to let, I'm going to give you my slot read to really? announce the number one film, Aww. number one horror film of the 1970s. You know what? I just have to say this. Nathan. <laughs> Nathan. <laughs> yes, my, yes, my friend. <laughs> Did you... You're a good man. <laughs> I've waited so long to hear that. You know? I, I know I endangered that statement with my technological no, issues no, last week. <laughs> none at all. None whatsoever. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Okay, so number one, your number one favorite horror film of the 1970s. It is the one, the only, directed by John Carpenter from 1978. Episode 10 of The Fear of God. Halloween, the original Halloween. Oh, man. And you know what's so interesting about this? I have to make a comment about this placement here. So this is going to start as a Bob Dylan reference. It's going to quickly pivot into a, a actual horror reference. Um, Bob Dylan's album, Highway 61, uh, Highway 61 Revisited, rather, is um, largely credited with sort of starting his electric period and ironically, it started his sort of electric guitar period, and it ended his phase of, like, folk acoustic tunes exclusively. And it ends, the Highway 61 Revisited album ends with a, uh, like, a, like a long 11-minute 
acoustic song called Desolation Row. So what I've heard about that is, you know, it, it, it fin- essentially ends with a version of what era it ended. And what I find so fascinating about this particular list and Halloween being number one is Halloween comes at the end of the 70s, like 1978, almost right at the end, but effectively ended the pattern and form of the 1970s horror that people were so accustomed to at that time and ushering in, uh, you know, by popularity, the sort of slasher era of the 80s. And so uh, it's it's interesting that it is the number one favorite horror film of the 1970s uh, while effectively kind of putting an end to many of the stylistic uh, things we had seen through the 70s. So uh, I thought gonna, that was fascinating. I'm gonna, but I'm going to really impress you here. Ah. Uh, even more interestingly, Reed, is that uh, some would consider um, uh, number 12 on our top 50 list, that of Bob Clark of Christmas Story fame's Black Christmas uh-huh. to be the initial entry in the slasher genre, but genre, that is. However, it is uh, John Carpenter's Halloween that most popularized the form that would lead to what we know today. As the slasher genre, do you like that? You like how I, that? dude, dude, can can I tell Look you something? There. Can I tell you yeah. something? <laughs> Nathan, <laughs> Nathan, yes, just Nathan. Uh huh. You're you're a good man. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate the affirmation. It is it is it is received with kindness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so that was your favorite horror films. Of the 1970s, we hope you enjoyed that countdown. And uh, so now we are, as we, you know, as we've already gone through, with the exception of of Dawn of the Dead from 1978, we have already covered literally everything from your top ten, uh, except for uh, the film that we are about to cover right now from 1978, from 19, sorry, from 1976, directed by Richard Donner, The Omen. Now, Nathan. Read. Have you ever had you ever heard of this film before? I know you had not seen it because you clued me in on that before the recording. But had you had you ever heard of this film before? Bro, come on, bro, yeah. bro. Yeah, so of course yeah. I've heard of the Omen. I do love. I, now I did have no clue that Richard Donner directed it, but I do ah. love that in the um, I love the '70s series. Two weeks ago on Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I made what at the time seemed like a very random reference to the Chris Reeve Superman, and turns out it wasn't random at all. We were going to get to a Richard Donner movie, and here we yep. are. Yep, that's true. Isn't that's that, very, that very true. So yes, I, I, I had never seen The Omen. I knew, uh, I knew loosely it was a quote-unquote Antichrist type. You know, I, I didn't know how much it delved into that, or that there right, were multi- right. that there were multiple sequels. Um, the pop culture reference I know most notably uh, when it comes to relating to the Omen is that of Wayne's World, the first feature film where <laughs> wow. uh, uh, titular character Wayne and with him, as always, is Garth, get into a fight and one of them yells at the other, just Damien, just yell, calls them, calls the other Damien. <laughs> wow. And it kind of it kind of is meant to end the argument. <laughs> but wow. that was my uh, pop culture reference before this. So no, I I was aware of it. I knew loosely loosely the tone, but um, you know, had never seen right, it. Right, right. So what's interesting about the film is uh this was another one of the myri- for me, it was another one of the myriad of films that I just sort of sought out because it was notable in the horror genre. I've uh, been a horror fan for as long as I can remember. Uh so I saw this film pretty early, but there was one note 
and this is this is going to feel so random and to even bring it up I should have done uh more of my homework but there was a book uh and I it was one of those books I don't remember the title and honestly like be hard pressed to even want to try to seek it out but it was one of those books of the variety of like in the uh, 80s and 90s Christian subculture like hey what movies can Christians watch and what movies can't Christians watch and blah, 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 and all this other sort of stuff. And it was basically sort of dissecting a large number of films and their basic content and their basic sort of spiritual value or not. Um, I have complicated feelings about those kind of books right now, but the reason I'm mentioning it here is because I remember it specifically praising The Omen uh, for having such overt sort of religious themes and overt religious imagery while... Uh, it is somewhat graphic in its in its occasional depiction of actually it's it, it's not as graphic as it could have been um but it occasionally violent and bloody um is somewhat restrained in all other areas and so that i, I remember when i saw that i was like oh I, I need to seek that one out because maybe that one's going to be you know mom and dad won't mind that i'm watching a horror movie because look the book recommends it it's great um <laughs> one other personal note just a shout out to my buddy lee wright um, he and I went to see the remake of this, uh, which admittedly wasn't that great, but he and I made the effort to go out to the theater on June 6th, 2006, yes, 666, to see the remake of this. Uh, I haven't revisited that remake because there's really no need. But, uh, but yeah, so that's my history and experience with The Omen. It's been will you, will somewhat you, um, my favorite. We, we actually, it's been a little while since we've done this, but most of it's self-explanatory, but yes, the story of this is, um, I'm getting, I'm getting to a question, but getting past the summary first, uh, Gregory Peck's wife, uh, loses a child in childbirth. Um, she is to my recollection, unaware of that because unaware of the loss of the child. Um, correct. And a a priest puts upon Gregory Peck's character. Hey, we got this little one over here. Why don't you take it? He has, uh, however, very brief moral quandary over it and then decides to commit. And, you know, you, you, you just learn the nature of this child is very fraught, but where I'm going with this is have you seen and, or what do you think of the sequels? I have seen them all. Uh, so I'll, 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 I'll start with the least interesting note. Omen for the awakening. Don't don't even bother. Utter waste of your time. Not like not even in that so bad it's good category. It's an utter waste of your time. Um, Omen two uh, has some merit. It's got some decent performances. If you liked the basic style of this one, uh, Damien is like a a young teen, um, still kind of coming into his own. There's some interesting things about him kind of wrestling with his own identity and wrestling with. You know whether or not he is the, um, you know the the antichrist and and sort of embracing that mantle. Um, it's it's pretty interesting, but definitely inferior to this original installment. The third film utterly fascinates me because the third film, first of all, it stars Sam Neill as right. an adult Damien. Um, it's called The Final Conflict. It is one of the most overtly religious. Uh, horror films that I've ever seen. There is an extended sequence in which Damien has a lengthy monologue, like a rant, a diatribe against a crucifix, like where he's sort of arguing with the Nazarene. And the whole premise of that film is that he, as an adult, is now trying to 
stop the second coming of who he keeps calling the Nazarene. They never refer to him as Jesus, but, uh, you know, trying to stop the coming of the Nazarene. It's a much quieter film. The, uh, the, the deaths in them, there are deaths in the film, but the deaths are much more subdued. Um, it's not as scary. It's more of a drama, uh, which definitely, you know, caused it to not do as well. The score in that film is pretty lavish again, composed by Jerry Goldsmith who composed this one. But I have to mention this huge spoilers for the final conflict, but this is the only place I'm ever going to be able to say it. It straight up ends with uh, Damien having been mortally wounded and wandering into a church that was presumed to be the uh, place where Christ would reappear. And straight up, Christ appears from the clouds, shrouded in light, and defeats Damien. Like, or Damien, like, dies right in front of him. And then the film ends with, like, quotes from the book of Revelation talking about how he will wipe every tear away. One of the main characters has lost a child. The Nazarene like picks up the child and gives it back to her. And like the boy is raised and, and like it's, it's, it's so, yeah, like it's, it's completely antithetical to what you would normally consider the rest of this series to be, but yes, like straight up. And it's called the final conflict, but yeah, I was so surprised the first time I saw it that it's straight. And it's not like, a great film. It's really not. It's got uh, the, even Sam Neill's performance, and Sam Neill's an actor I love, but even his performance is kind of shaky in it. Uh, and again, it is very much a drama. It's not even really uh, a horror film or styled that way, but it's got some really interesting ideas kind of at its root. Um, I, I kind of like what it's trying for, but it is very notable for like the ending. It, it's straight up like Jesus comes back and cleans house. <laughs> Like wow. wow, yeah, I'm really, really surprised by that. But that's where you know that's my general take on the on the three sequels, having utterly spoiled the final conflict. But if that interests you, then there you go. Uh, you can seek it out; it's readily available. Hmm. All right. Um. So I have, as is typically the case with these '70s classics, I have a mountain of uh, trivial bits. So, uh, do you have some research, some stuff we could bounce back and forth, or do you want me to just sort of yeah, roll for I mean, a few I'm- minutes? Uh, yeah, I've got. I would rather bounce than roll. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um. I did love this note. Um. That Mrs. Baylock, the uh, not horror movie character at all, nanny to Damien. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, who you know heavily? It's heavily featured. She has this uh, Rottweiler um, who shows up throughout the film but yes uh the note says the biggest problem with shooting with her dog the character's dog is that the animal was nothing like the creature he was portraying <laughs> right. that he wanted to lick and play with the co-stars rather than threaten them that's great. so funny i love that one more note about Ms. Baylock while we're there she was originally conceived as actually a much warmer friendlier presence uh but the actor billy whitelaw uh, actress rather uh mm-hmm auditioned as a slightly sinister reading of the lines um, and Donner was so taken with her performance that he uh, pivoted the direction for the role to that more sort of sinister ominous version that we get in the final film well what's funny about you saying that and this is fun kind of dovetailing into this other note was that um, Donner and the producer producers were noting how the intention of the film was subtlety like there mm, you mm-hmm. you may even you may even have this somewhere but there was it was meant to be positioned mostly as the idea that you could possibly 
misconstrue what is actually happening. Yes. You know, yes. Um, but that um, Mrs. Baylock was so over the top evil, it was clear that that was this fly in the ointment from a production <laughs> right. standpoint. Right. Um, but Donner loved the actor so much that he couldn't let her go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but that that the idea of her character, the way she's executed or the way you know she's performed, kills the ambiguity and suspense <laughs> exactly. in a lot of ways. So what's interesting about that is, so Richard Donner. Uh, this is one of the those films that just some somewhat randomly I've listened to the audio commentary for it, and in it, he actively states more than once that. His interpretation of the events, so so the director's interpretation of the events of the film, is that Robert Thorne is delusional and is having a breakdown, and that all of these sorts of uh, sort of ominous omens that he's seeing are inventions of his mind. And so Richard Donner does not believe in any of the sort of supernatural components to anything. He actively asked the screenwriter, David Seltzer, to remove any supernatural elements such as like cloven-hoofed demons or witches' covens or anything like that. Um, like you said, he wanted there to be a degree of doubt to, as to interpretation. And David Seltzer, the screenwriter, has openly admitted that he believes in none of it and actually is, is quoted as saying that he finds it horrifying how many people believe all this silliness. That's his quote. Uh, that he wrote the script purely... For the paycheck, and I just, I, it's, it's fascinating to me because the film, if you watch it purely objectively, I think you would feel that the film posits that he really is this antichrist figure. But apparently, the screenwriter and the director did not interpret things that way, and I just, I well, found that fascinating. I think it is difficult to separate where the fact that and where the franchise goes. I think it's difficult to separate. Yeah, yeah pop culturally what we attach to the omen but having never seen it i would be curious what donner would identify as okay everything is delusional like where does where does reality in the in the film narrative begin and end so that that would be a, a curiosity i'd have but it also you know the way the actor who plays damien is is played or or directed right right we assign a lot of what's there. That's true. Yes, is, is, all, is all I'm trying to say. That's a long no, way of no. saying that. Is that is that someone like you describe in the screenwriter, like say stating that it's like, well, I you know, taken literally on its own, this film does support that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, a couple more uh, bits of of trivia here. This is this is a bit of a sad note, but I found it somewhat poignant. Uh, one of the main reasons that Gregory Peck accepted the role, he was actually considering retirement at the time, but one of the reasons he accepted this role of a, of a tortured and tormented father was to partially help him cope and deal with the suicide of his own son the previous year. Um, he actually took a major pay cut to play the role um, and instead decided to take a percentage of the box office gross. Ironically, the film was so incredibly successful that it became the biggest financial payout of of Peck's career. That wasn't a strategic thing on his part. He was just doing it because he was for his own personal reasons. Um, and then it wound up being his his uh, most financially successful payout, uh, which I which I found interesting. 
to to draw us slightly up more towards the shallows on the Gregory Peck notes. <laughs> um, I love this note. Donner had to frequently reshoot his close-ups because he objected to being seen with a double chin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I love it. Um, it was funny, though, the, the production, like, uh, uh, similar to... Uh, Toby Hooper slash Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist, the production seemed plagued by a pretty sinister curse. Uh, Gregory Peck and screenwriter David Seltzer both... Yes. They both took separate flights into the UK, yet both separate flights were struck by lightning. Uh, Just a couple more mentions. The hotel where the director was staying was bombed by the IRA. Several principal members of the crew were in a head-on car collision on the first day of production. They survived, thankfully, but there were several other, like almost too many to list, of like just accidents and uh, somewhat tragedies uh, that befell the production uh, to the degree that there were rumors of this sort of supposed curse um, that plagued the production, which I found fascinating. That's all I got. Um, I bit. have just I have a, I have just a couple more. Uh, you mentioned earlier Richard Donner, uh, director of Superman. Of course, he was prior to this primarily a TV director. Um, he directed a small handful of made-for-TV features, but this was his first major production as director. But then he would go on to direct such notable classics as, of course, Superman, The Goonies, Lethal Weapon, the in, pr- basically the entire Lethal Weapon franchise, Scrooged and a special director's cut of Superman 2. So some heavy hitters, but this was uh, where he got his feature film uh, debut. I thought this was pretty funny. David Warner kept his severed head prop for many, many years. In fact, until his divorce, when his ex-wife took possession of it. <laughs> so, Weird. <laughs> strange, right? Um uh, the the last note that I have here, just because I found it fascinating, is that Charlton Heston, Roy Scheider, and Dick Van Dyke were all offered the role of Robert Thorne, and all of them turned it down. Dick Van Dyke, uh, who's one of my favorite actors, later said that turning down that role was stupid of him. Um, so that is uh, the extent of uh, is the extent of my bits. Um, so now let's get into uh, some of the some of the meat of the content of the film. What so so what you got for likes dislikes? What's your general take on this? Well, Reed, this is for me. This is for you. This is for any person married to a woman. If mm. if anyone, another man, another woman especially a priest, says to you oh boy. the sentence, your wife need never know. Yep. If that, if that sentence is ever uttered to you, like it's in trouble. just, yeah, you're, yep. yeah. Like yep. that is you nothing die. good. Nothing good is going to happen. Yep. Nope. You, you should, you should jump out a window. Run far away. Push, push yes, him off a ledge, yes, like run yes. far, far away. Yep. I mean, I just, I just love the setup. It's like, hey, I know you just lost this baby. We got this one over here. You know, I know, I mean, right? Oh my god, you, she wants one. She doesn't need it. It's a, it's just a baby. Look at that baby. It's so cute. Oh, we got my it. Gosh. It's just here. If it's I like, may say so, it's like, it it's even like the, resembles. <laughs> yeah, it's like the um. You know, it's like a it's like a jacked up version of This Is Us. You know. <laughs> oh wow! This is, like, this is like this is this is us the horror. <laughs> yeah, it, that's the uh, This Is Us. Oh my yeah. gosh! Now I'm just envisioning This Is Us as an alternate world where it's like a horror yeah. story instead. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. man, you could go so many places with that. Um, I you know it's it's funny I 
I thought about this when, because uh, obviously the film starts on, the film starts with the opening. It's like June sixth of uh, at six a.m. or something like all mm-hmm. these, yeah. you know, the the six 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 thing. Um, but it's interesting to me that like the omen of the title is never specified. Like it's never so so it could be referring to that six 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 birthmark, which is found on both Father Brennan and on uh, on Damien later in the film. It might refer to like the comet that they talk about later, but I've always found it interesting that the film never directly states or even uses the word omen right. in, in the film. Um, and I, I kind of love that about it because it, it, it invites a sort of um, investigation and interpretive nature to it. Uh, so yeah, it's just one of the many things that I love about this film. Part of me wants to find the joke here where it's really just like the comedy version of this is just, Oh man. Like, <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've just got a baby just waiting. Oh, man. Oh, you man. know, like that just gets oh, said man. over and over. <laughs> Your nanny just jumped off. <laughs> Your nanny just jumped off the window. Oh, man. Oh, man. That, that dog is freaking. Oh, man. Oh, man. You got crazy. You got pra- crazy priest coming after you with all these. Up- oh, man. <laughs> oh, that priest got skewered. What's his last words? Oh, <laughs> Oh man! That's what he says as it's coming down. Oh, right, man. right, right. <laughs> oh man! That's what everybody in the film says. Oh man! Right when, right when that man's head gets chopped off, he's like, "Oh my He doesn't get to finish man. his sentence. He just no. says, "Oh." <laughs> it's like, that's, oh man! Now, see, here's the thing. Like now, every single time I watch this movie, I'm gonna be looking and you're welcome. Every- there's that extended sequence, like after Robert Thorne cuts Damien's hair and finds the birthmark under there, just that long shot of him just looking like, I'm just now, I'm just going to be hearing in his head like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> just this long. Oh, man. Oh, thank you, Nathan. That's you hysterical. You are welcome. Um, so I want to make a comment here about this musical score. I flippin' love this musical score. I love everything about it. It's one of the few musical scores that I will uh, occasionally like, just listen to, like just as a piece of music out of context of the film. Um, it's by legendary composer Jerry Goldsmith. The The opening music is called the Ave Satani, which uh, translates to Hail Satan, very appropriate for an Antichrist film. Um, but also I love like there's the more lyrical, pastoral you know, melodies in it. Um, it's just, it's really a wonderful score, just beginning to end. Here's what's great about it. This is not trying to intentionally pivot back to trivial bits, but um, Donner I had... I know what you're gonna yeah. say. Yeah! So he had to ask the studio for a budget increase to hire Jerry Goldsmith. And Jerry Goldsmith had been nominated for an Oscar for this score, but... He declined to attend the Oscars ceremony because he'd been nominated so many previous times and he'd lost so many times before. So he was just like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to give them one more opportunity for me to lose. And he won and it was his only Oscar. (laughs) So like the only time he was invited to the ceremony and didn't attend is the time that he won, which I find a little sad. But he is absolutely just a a legendary composer, composer of the uh, most iconic sort of film version of the Star Trek theme and several other iconic scores. But... um, but yeah, I I do love this score. Uh, it's it, it's really powerful in a lot of ways. That's cool. Um, I was just gonna throw out here like Mrs. Baylock's 
entry into the film, you know, like she comes on screen, you're like, yeah, she ain't right. Uh, <laughs> but, I don't but trust it, you. But it reminds me of Noah from Dark talking to Helga's mom in 1953. We're like, we we know you bad, girl. You ain't, you, you know, this you is not You good. ain't right. You ain't right. Nope. That's, she, that's, that's not going to go well. She hit it's it kinda up like, there. It's kind of like when that priest says, your wife need never know. And you're like, uh, red flag. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Oh, man. Yeah, I know, Miss, right? Miss, Miss Balak just enters the frame and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's they cut the scene early. You know, like like Catherine looks over at Robert and is like, wait, where did I find her? I, don't, I thought you found her. And then they yeah. both look at each other and go, oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. It's like, it's like, it's like oh, boy, from Quantum Leap. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> You brought in Quantum Leap. Oh my gosh, it's so great. It's so great. He literally opened every single episode of Quantum Leap. He looked around, he's like, oh yeah. boy. And it ended oh, every episode too. It was great. Yeah, it was like so the awesome. omen. Yeah. Oh man. Oh um, man. <laughs> we should we should do a we should do our own commentary for the omen, but it's literally just us <laughs> dropping in to brace oh man to <laughs> all the various scenes. Listen to it as your Halloween bonus, everybody. <laughs> it's just literally us saying thirty or forty times at key moments. Oh man. Oh man. <laughs> oh. oh my gosh, that's hysterical. <laughs> Oh, oh, see, you know, turns out, like, Damien never speaks in the film. He's really just saying, oh, man, under his breath at all these crazy adults and the stuff they're putting him through. You know? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, all man. these baboons. Oh, man. Dude, that, that seems freaky. We're not in fear yet, but, dude, no. that seems freaky. Um, okay. I do love the general, so I love the general tone the dog, of the film. The dog, the dog's like, oh, man. The Marr. dog's like, oh, man. It's true. It's true. Okay, all right, moving on. Um, <laughs> so um, I love the general tone of the film. Uh, it actually reminded me. Obviously, it's it, many many years earlier, but um, kind of kind of reminiscent uh, to me, viewing wise, of Hereditary. In that, it, it is a horror film. It's a proper horror film, but it's also kind of focusing on a on a portrayal of a family in crisis. Um, that there's all of these sort of, as you alluded to, there's these areas which kind of could be interpreted a couple of different ways. Uh, like the the line just. Uh, Breaks my heart, uh, Gregory Peck says to Jennings when they find uh, Father Brennan's sort of room, um, and he says, my son is dead, I don't know whose son I'm raising. And uh, it's just, a you know, like the concept of, you know, these sorts of families in crisis of not understanding, you know, how to navigate their relationships, and obviously you're dealing with ominous portrayals that maybe your son is the literal antichrist but uh it's it's just, i love that the tone is set up uh, in such a way that it really focuses in on those familial relationships and i appreciate that about it so do you think yeah. do you think the donner note about delusionality delusions um do you think do you do you take that to mean that the events of the film don't occur in, in, in a certain way or or just that Thorne's interpretation of the events is, is grossly incorrect I don't think the film is dealing with any sort of like he's not really seeing what he's seeing I okay, think it yeah. is that he's delusional in his piecing together of disparate tragedies and yeah. assigning meaning to them I think that that's what Donner means when he says that like Robert Thorne is delusional in that he is assigning ominous meaning to these things because of factors yeah, that can, can that. be explained away, you know, another way. Um, that's, that's my, that's my thoughts on it. Um, okay. now that makes more sense because when you initially said it, I was like, that's, 
was like, oh man, that's weird. Oh, uh, just because, just because. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to stop, but you keep taking the bait. Um, um, but just, I thought you were saying that his sort of read on it was these things aren't actually occurring. But oh, it right, does right, make right, more right. sense. Like, no, he's just connecting dots that aren't meant to be connected. Right. Aren't really right. there. Yeah. Okay, yeah, like exactly. Um, did you have any? I have two more specific notes before we move into fear. Um,. I just one of them I wrote. That's a wild elevator in that hospital in Rome. That nurse, she oh, just steps. Yeah. She just steps on it and just off she goes. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Zoom. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She just like I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> and bye. Right. <laughs> and see ya. Um, <laughs> you know, I talking about like um, stuff not assigning more meaning than is there. Like I don't get it. This what happens to Damien in that car is just how most kids react when you're trying to get them out the door to church like that is it's true what's true i don't i was like oh man this poor family like what what like this is just how it is yeah Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean he's the antichrist that means he's a child (laughs) he's just a child children children don't like it and they and they sometimes (laughs) just go a little rabbit on you they just like just start like just flailing and scratching at you for no reason. Like, what's right. wrong? I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. One of my worry, favorite things. Worry for the parent who watches that thing and they're like, what? Yeah, like what? This is normal. That's it. Um, there's one of my favorite, like, sequence of memes is there, <laughs> there, and I would, I would be hard-pressed to find it again, but there's a sequence of memes that just shows children crying. Just yeah. all it is is just children uh-huh. crying, and then the reasons why the they're explainer. crying. Yeah. Uh, the explainer is subtitled. And one of my favorites of that, because there was a long stream of them, but the one that always stands out to me is there was one with just a child just bawling their eyes out, and under it it said, "They asked me for cheese, I gave them cheese." Right. <laughs> and it's like that's why they just suddenly started completely bawling their eyes out because it's true. Like children just have these erratic reactions to things that you're like, what? in the world is going on. Are you the devil? <laughs> I'm, ra- I'm raising the spawn of Satan is what it is. So uh, that's clearly who's, the most logical. Uh, who's, whose child am I raising? <laughs> it's yeah, I think about a lot. Um, um, yeah. So I have, uh, I have two more. Uh, okay. I love the entire scene where Thorne and Jennings break into the cemetery. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things I specifically noted this time around is it reminds me of all those old gothic horror films. Like, it's just, you know, this this old-styled graveyard. Um, of course, culminates in the reveal of the graves of the jackal and the baby skeleton um, spiraling into the pretty suspenseful attack by the dogs. Um, but uh, but I just, I love everything about that scene. It just, it has a an older quality to it um, that uh, that I just really, really appreciate. I do want to mention uh, before we move into fear the uh, I love the final shot of the movie. I don't know if you discovered this in your trivial bit reading, but I love this note. So in the original intention for the film, Robert Thorne successfully kills Damien before the police burst in and then the police kill Robert. But the studio head, Alan Ladd Jr., believed that the ending we ultimately get would be much stronger. I happen to agree with him. I think it's a very strong ending. Um, Richard Donner achieved that ominous smile from the Harvey Stevens, the actor playing Damien by off screen. Damien looked around at him and, uh, Richard Donner was telling him, don't you smile. 
you better not smile. Don't smile at me. Don't smile. And so then that's what achieved that little effect of him like so, sort of steadily creeping up the smile, which I think is just a, a nearly perfect final shot for this mm-hmm. film. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that ends my sort of uh, likes-dislikes portion, if you will. I will. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, so what you got for uh, the fear factor? I mean, you know. Old old nanny hanging herself is pretty messed up. That's, and it, it's so jarring. It is jarring. And you know what? As scary as her statement that she yells is, as scary as her jumping is, as scary as her hanging herself is, you know, the rebound back into the breaking of the window, Reed, I don't know if you might not know that that's an expensive window to replace. Like <laughs> Like, you know, and if you replace that one, it's probably going to look pretty different than the other one. So then do you replace the entire wall of that house? I'm picking up a vibe for your profession. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) All I'm saying is, oh, man. Oh, man. That's an an expensive window. Everybody everybody at the birthday party looks over and just, oh, man. (laughs) 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 I wish you could see my face right now. I'm just like bug eyes. Oh, 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 man. Why did we let our kid come to this expensive birthday party? (laughs) Just just, 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 just traumatized everybody. Because, you know, they're worried about Damien because she's like, it's all for you. But there were other kids at this party. Right. I want to know their story. I want to know what happened. Like, yeah, so let me tell you about the time I was at my friend's birthday party and suddenly the nanny just jumped off the balcony. Like, that's jacked up. That ain't right. That That ain't right. right. Oh, man. Oh, man. Um, So, I'm sorry, Nathan. I'm sorry. This kid is just creepy. I'm sure he was a fine kid. He is. But he's a creepy kid, man. Like, I've seen a lot of films with creepy kids in them, and they have to kind of, like, creep the kid up. And then you see them on, like, the red carpet, and they're fine. Like, this kid is creepy. He's just super creepy. I'm sorry. No offense to whoever or whatever, but he's just he's a super creepy kid. So I put his whole presence in the film in my scares because, yeah, he's he's just creepy. Well, you know, that baboon scene, Reed, that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is bananas. That <laughs> it's a lit. <laughs> they wanted them, dude. It's crazy. So like, I couldn't. I read something that I couldn't quite discern. And I couldn't figure out. So they tried to get the baboons to freak out by having like a baby baboon in the back of the car, and then that didn't work. The baboons like didn't react. So they showed like a stuffed head of a baboon disconnected from body, and they freaked out. Like, they just, they could not tolerate it at all. To the degree that Lee Remick, the actor playing Catherine Thorne, uh, that, like, she was genuinely afraid for them in that, in that car because they're like, we can't. And uh, it, I think this was, a, like, a, an apocryphal report from the set that the uh, trainer who tried to come in and, like, calm them down got injured on, like, trying to calm them down because they would not stop <laughs> freaking out from having seen that thing. I was like, dude. Everybody, everybody sitting there like, oh man, oh, man, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> baboons, oh man. I'm telling you, you know, listeners we, may have been what? tired of that 20 minutes ago. I will never I tire know. of this joke. No. So you just gotta push through. For it. You I'm gotta push through. That's it. Oh, um, man. we do need to pour a cold one out for old Kathy. My girl is like, man, she just gets bamboozled by the patriarchy, by the religious yep. establishment. Like she just wants everybody. She, Come on, man. She just wants a kid. 
and her her husband may as well be her father in terms of their age difference. Like, that is true. You know, like this lady, she just she can't get a break. No, no wonder. Yeah. No, she can't at all. It's a really tragic figure. Like I know we're kind of being lighthearted about it, but like no, she. I mean, like it's a really tragic character because she has no awareness at all. She's she's straight up lied to about her son. Like straight up lied to by supposedly the love of her life, which that's just awful in and of itself. But uh, is straight up lied to about it, and then uh, like to go through everything that she does, where we're not even commenting on the fact that she, you know, she becomes pregnant again, and uh, because of the psychological trauma, wants to terminate the pregnancy because she just can't tolerate what's happening with with Damien, and uh, yeah, this this poor character is just tragically beset on all sides. It's really it's really pretty awful. I wrote. Uh, I do. I don't know if it's a like a scare or a like dislike, but uh, but I, I really do enjoy the uh, the sequence of the priest as he's wandering to the cemetery, like leading up to his death. It's with all the wind swirling around and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a pretty harrowing scene. Also noted, we were just talking about Kathy, her fall from the banister. That's mm-hmm. that's pretty that's devastating. Rough. There's actually a, okay. So there's a smite. There's a slight note uh, call out to the exorcist here. Famously, William Friedkin had kind of been abusive to his actors on set for The Exorcist, mm-hmm. um, including that scene. There's a scene where they're in Reagan's room in The Exorcist, and Ellen Burstyn gets like yanked back very hard. Uh, and William Friedkin had assured her that they would only yank it back like a little bit, and that she would go the rest of the way. And then he, on the sly, told the guys to like really pull the rope very, very hard, and she like kind of got hurt a little bit. It's pretty bad, but. Reports from that set had caused the actress here, uh, Lee Remick, to be very, like, weary of doing the stunt for the fall scene. So mm-hmm. uh, Richard Donner wasn't able to construct the scene the way he wanted it. He literally wanted her to be able to kind of drift and fall onto, like, a pad, but she wouldn't do it. And so he had to construct, like, a vertical scene where she was sort of upright and being uh-huh. pulled back on a dolly, which is why that fall scene kind of looks a bit uh, unnatural, if you will. It doesn't look like a natural fall. Uh, she, Her body's just kind of too still, and gravity doesn't seem to quite take a hold, and that's why. It's because she refused to do the stunt scene uh, the way that he wanted to. It's still, a pretty fect- it's still a pretty effective scene, as it is. I don't think much is lost on that moment. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. That's interesting. I have one more note in my in my fear well, category. I I just would like to register that being eviscerated by wild dogs might be a thing I would rank as like a top nightmare scenario for me. Yeah, that's pretty scary. That whole that like I said, that gothic scene in the cemetery, man, like that is that is really, really a nightmare. I would just really I would just scary. have one really long O man as oh, man. shredding me to pieces. So the film almost got this is my last scare note. The film almost got an X rating. Did you read about this in your travels? No. Uh-uh. Okay. So it's a it's a pretty subdued film, honestly. Like most of the even like the death of the priest, um, some of the other deaths in the film, like they're not very bloody, as it were. Like they're 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 jarring, but they're not very bloody. They're not very graphic. Um, but for one scene only, it almost got its X rating, and that was yeah. Jennings' decapitation scene. So here's what's really sadistic and kind of brilliant about Richard Donner. He purposefully filmed the scene. If you pay attention to the timing, he knew that audiences would be like, oh, I don't want to see him get decapitated. So they would like shutter their eyes for a second and like close their eyes. He purposefully extended the scene by three seconds so that they would close their eyes and then 
open them again awesome. and still see the spinning right. head sort of still floating there in the in the air. And that scene originally was intended to be a lot bloodier and uh it was again it was about to get an x rating so they did that scene without like spurting splay, spraying blood everywhere but to give the sort of metaphorical illusion of it you see off in the distance some wine spilling at the same time that it goes and that's supposed to be like a metaphorical representation of what's happening so it's a pretty brilliantly constructed scene especially because you've already been given the setup about the photographs which i think is a pretty brilliant plot point like you're waiting that whole time of like, oh man, what's going to happen to poor Jennings? Because his his head's coming off at some point, um, and yeah. So then we we end with that. Yeah, I mean he'll 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 never get ahead in life. Oh man. Yeah. I mean he's he's <laughs> more than that. He's he's for sure never going to be the head of a major corporation. How, how many of these do you have? Just, <laughs> you know, I just it should be registered. Thorne should have spoken up and been like. It is not a good time to lose one's head. No. Jennings was like, you know what? If you're good, I'm going to head out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) You know what? My very last last note is never turn your back on Baylock. Uh-uh. Oh, my gosh. That's such a jarring. I can't believe I didn't write that down scares. That's such a jarring moment because you've just been hit with the big revelation. It's so quiet. In a film that is, you know, ba- filled with musical score, it's so quiet. He's trimming the hair. He finds the birthmark. He's freaked out by it, but it pauses there for a good like five to seven seconds, maybe even ten, and then suddenly, old Baylock screeches into frame. Supposedly, that scene was going to be a lot longer, but both, you know, uh, Whitelaw and Peck considered it like too excessive. So. I mean, it's still a pretty lengthy fight scene, even as we sure. even for what we get. But supposedly, it was intended to be like five or ten minutes longer, and they just like this is too excessive. Like you can't you can't extend this this long. So I, I have there's so many places you could go with theme with this. Do do you mind if I kind of lead the charge on on this particular avenue? Lead the way. Um, there's a line in this. So obviously, there's all kinds of things that could be said about the notion of like. There's a lot of spiritual and religious overtones to the film. There's a lot of religious imagery to the film, religious themes. But there's one line in here that I found to be really profound and something worth thinking about. Uh, It does bleed into the greater narrative of the film, but it's just worth pondering just sort of on its own. Um, So when they're in Megiddo and the priest is talking to them about the diabolical trinity. Uh, the the diabolical mm-hmm. trinity is the reverse of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, which is the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. But what he says to them, he's, he's speaking to Robert Thorne, Gregory Peck's character, and um, Jennings, the David Warner character, uh, Says he says, for everything holy, there is something unholy. This is the essence of temptation. And uh, I found that just to be you know a pretty profound little pausing observation there just this idea of a mirrored version of everything that could be deemed holy sacred sacramental that there is something a a a reverse of it a contrast a counterfeit uh something that is unholy and that as as the priest puts it here the essence of temptation is the drawing towards this counterfeit version of things and there's obviously 
a mountain of places that we could go with this. We can go as deep or as shallow as, as, as we feel fit to in this conversation. But something that I had been reflecting on quite a bit is, and it's something I think about a lot. You and I have talked in different contexts about, how do I want to enter into this? Basically, there are certain things which pose as, again, sacred, holy, upright, good, but they're merely counterfeit illusions. Um, somebody claims to be apologizing, but it's really like the illusion of an apology. They're not really they're not really sorry for what they've done. They're not owning what they've done. They're basically like, well, I'm sorry you took it that way. And there's there's counterfeit versions of of confession where somebody you know creates the illusion of transparency, the illusion of forthcomingness, and then uh, really they're still hiding the true underbelly of everything uh, beneath what they're really saying. Uh, there's the illusion of friendliness the the illusion of trust the or trustworthiness as it were so many things which it's like again i'm just bouncing around in this idea that for everything holy there is something sure. unholy that there's a, a a mirrored contrasting version of it um and that it really is a challenge to us to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with our assessment of the world around us, uh, you know, how, how frequently we might be drawn as it is the essence of temptation, how frequently we might be drawn to the counterfeit version of it. It begins, this film begins with him substituting a counterfeit baby into their home and calling it their own. Your wife need never know. And, and that's what spirals this whole thing out of control is his acceptance, his unwillingness to face tragic as it was the the loss of their child and instead to substitute this version in and again i don't know how deep we want to go with this but it just rattles off in my brain all the ways in which we will accept and sometimes even pursue the counterfeit in full knowledge that it is a counterfeit sometimes uh basically and saying like this will get us by this will fill the space that the real and the substantive uh, would have fit. Um, this will this will basically get us by. So we're gonna bypass the the real uh, for the sake of this known counterfeit. And it frightens me how many times we would be willing, as human beings, as people of faith, as just you know socially conscious thinkers, how many times we would be willing to openly embrace those substitutions. Uh, it's just uh, a haunting thought in, in in a story like this. I don't know if you have any sort hmm. of recurring thoughts to that. You know, I, this may be perceived as splitting hairs, but I can appreciate what you're after because you're using the text of the film, the language of the film, to go where you're going. And so I have the benefit of hearing your thoughts as they come to you uh, mm. and, and being able to address them that way. And, and so I, I'm going to rattle for a moment and want you to feel free to, to speak to that as well, to, to what I'm about to say. But like, sure. I think a reason I and wrestles the wrong word, but high school me might have found a lot more to be at fear of in a film like this. 
mm. yeah. than mm-hmm. 40-year-old me, which I am now. And, and, and so there's a way in which I now watch a movie like this purely as a, like it's, it's more kind of conventional horror movie to me in my yeah. current sort of theology framework than it is any sort of signal of, of the real. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think what you're identifying, there's almost two strains of it. There's the film posits for every holy, there is an unholy. I, I would, for me, reject that idea, but I'm going to affirm what you're also saying that I do sort of agree with in the sense that, and agree is the wrong word. We're not speaking in you're right, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, you're right kind of right, language. Right. I'm just addressing this. And in fact, that exact idea is what I'm trying to dispense with. I think the notion of for everything holy is there is an unholy is a bit of an immature construct that feeds into this is a real reductive I'm closing a lot of gaps real quickly with a with this comment, but feeds okay. into thing feeds into things like, well, I can make a wrong decision with things as stupid as what I wear that day. Does that make mm, sense? Like mm, yeah, there is sure. a wrong choice is, is effectively. And, and sometimes even that wrong choice is fraught with wickedness and evil. Okay. In other words, yeah. if there's a holy, there's an unholy. That's all I'm trying to address there. That said, I do think, and you use this word, I think, and I'm going to explode that out. I do think there's appropriateness in, in negotiating with what might be the shadow of a thing, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. like there's a di- all I'm trying to say I don't really buy in on is holy and unholy are equal and opposite forces. I don't believe that. Uh, uh, um, I do think, yes, there is a best version and then there's the shade. And and th- this may sound real weird, but this is where my brain went. It's like sex and pornography is what it made me think of. Is mm-hmm. you have sexual intercourse, which is by and large meant to and and it's most pure form a a relational act right Uh, Right. then you have pornography which is this shadowed version it's divorced of relationship that's a real direct analogy and example but i'm sure there are others it's just kind of what came to me Uh um and so that i do like yes there is i mean stupid things like eating junk food eating junk food is a shadow of a better act which is feeding ourselves well you know right right the the analogy is weakening a little bit with that example but i hope i hope it makes a little sense what i'm trying to say which is i do think i'm affirming what you're saying which is there are lesser than expressions of best forms that we actually can if we take the time and use the discernment and you know, contemplate and, and meditate on and pray towards there are best versions we can chase after that we won't always yeah. reach, you know, we won't always right, reach that right. best form, but it also doesn't require us to, to settle for the shadow version either. We can be at least conscious of, okay, well, I may not have gotten here, quote, whatever the best form is, but I know this shadow thing is not something I want to indulge or participate in either so i'm not going to do that i don't know if i'm making any right. sense but yeah, just yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. just kind of attacking that dualism and saying i also i agree with the essence of what you were i think after which is there are less than iterations of best versions that we maybe should go after yeah absolutely well and i like your 
uh, analogy there of shadow because a shadow holds the similar shape of a thing but no substance so it it uh, basically is the is the outlined version of that sometimes depending on the source of light the larger apparently you know in appearance larger version of that thing but it is utterly devoid of any substance like you can't you you can't hold it you can't uh it will not do anything for you pursuing again like a a shadowed uh version and no i definitely would not posit uh with apologies if i if i did or if i edged into that territory that i would not posit it that holy and unholy were in in the sense of equally opposing forces sure you know set and set you, you against didn't, one another you didn't literalize that i was just the language from the film does feel like it posits that you were just taking that language and running with it. And so I was sort of affirming sure, that while also sure. making that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I definitely feel like, uh, I think the analogy again, we're talking about shadow and darkness and, uh, even the, the most substantive darkness can be dispelled by tiny fractions of light, you know, um, that, uh, that it is, it is pretty easy for, when light breaks in uh, for it to basically dispel the darkness, that the darkness by its nature is a, is, is an absence of light. So is not a thing unto itself. And I do think that that's taking it to the place where we think about the counterfeit versions, the lesser than versions that we pursue and so often settle for. I think that's something that we often find ourselves kind of, to to use old biblical language chasing after the wind like we're pursuing these things that ultimately will not satisfy will not give sustenance to us and oftentimes finding out way too late in the pursuit that it is shallow it is futile and finding out like this is what's so devastating about like something in this nature of this film once he the film doesn't let you in on the reality of this right away, but he, Robert Thorne, as a character and as an entity, is lost from the very first scene of the film. Like, it, huh. is, it is that decision that then begins the inevitable, because everything after that, he's too deep into it to turn the tide against anything. Father Brennan talks to him about taking communion. Maybe that will work. It's just, it, it's too far gone at that point. Even him going to Megiddo, finding the daggers, uh, going after it, attempting, like it's all, everything is beset against him. And it really all just started with that embrace of the false, if uh, if if you want to deem it that. Um, that embrace of, I am going to take the false and I am going to, you know, present it as the real. Um, and that's, the mom- that's interesting because I'm sorry to cut you off there. No, yeah, but, you're fine. But to piggyback on that, that is interesting because if you contextualize this in what you began describing as the the true versus the false, um, not so much holy and unholy, but just best and shadow, mm. like the participating agent in it is the priest at the beginning who says your wife yeah. need never know i'm making i made a little bit light of that at the front end but also there's great weight and anytime a voice says to you <laughs> you can be duplicitous and get away with it that is yeah. not a voice that should be heeded yeah know? oh absolutely 
Absolutely. Because I think there's, and, and, and here's what's interesting about it. I think there is, there's a time for discretion. Like there's a time to, to, sure, to yeah, be yeah, yeah. silent, but n- and neither one of us are saying like, yo, you should just unleash all the secrets, but like, you're right. And any opportunity to be, it, it, it is the essence of, I mean, to, well, I did not intend to stumble back into the language of the film. I was about to say it's the essence of temptation for a completely different reason. And it was just funny to me in that moment that I was accidentally quoting the film again. But this idea of a moment's compromise for the much greater good is like one of the most tempting things in the world. Like, like compromise just this one moment, nobody will ever know. And it'll create so much good. And, and then, you know, isn't that worth it? Isn't that, uh, isn't that the better thing to do? Nobody is going to know. Why not just take this one moment? You don't even have to mean it. Like, you don't even have to to be sincere about it. Just do this one compromising thing, fix this, work this thing. It'll create all this good in the world, and then, you know, nobody has to do it. And there's a line from a book by Russell Moore um, who can be, uh, some surprisingly uh, to me, somewhat of a controversial figure these days. Um, There's nothing controversial about Russell Moore. There should not be anything <laughs> there controversial be. about no. Russell Moore. No, there I shouldn't be. A, it, I don't even agree with him on everything, but that's a good man. Yes, he he is. He is. And uh, he wrote a book that I found uh, very recommendable. It's called Tempted and Tried. It's a powerful book on the temptation of Jesus. Um, but in it... Um, I wish that I could quote the exact line. I just don't have it written in front of me because I didn't expect to quote it. But um, he talks about uh, the final temptation. And one of the things he says is, um, and again, forgive me those of you who have read the book or know the quote. I'm butchering it a little bit, kind of paraphrasing. But he says, the enemy does not care if your morals are right side up so long as your crosses are upside down. So long as you are unwilling, basically, to surrender yourself to crucifixion and uh, basically to allow yourself to be brought low for the sake of, you know, what what needs to be done, what is right and good and and holy. If you're unwilling to surrender yourself to that, like basically we want to keep our crowns intact. We want to keep our glories intact. And I'm, I'm speaking kind of to the broader church at large, but this way in which we can uh try to shore up like you know one of the phrases that used to just offend me so deeply even when it was happening in the moment but i kind of am in a place in my life now where i can understand a little bit more why it is so offensive to me but is the idea of well we can't let this particular uh transgression get out or we can't let this you know this thing be uh, public knowledge because it will quote unquote hurt our witness. Did you ever hear that phrase growing up? Oh, sure. Yeah. You're like, you know, you don't want to hurt your witness. And it's just, it's become pretty devastating to me this way in which we will, uh, again, impropriety that can be hidden, uh, disguised, covered up, that can be just sort of swept away. Um, and like, like you posited earlier, like anytime somebody's basically saying to you, you can be transgressive and get away with it and nobody need know like you are already like the moment you embrace that you are headed down the wrong path like the and and possibly an irrevocable one like once that is embraced by you in any capacity like i can uh and i'm I'm not setting up this legalistic thing like oh you can never do anything wrong because we're all human and we all make mistakes but i think there's a difference between the recognition of i'm a flawed human being who's just doing my best to navigate my life uh in an honest and open and sincere way 
and this sort of polished sheen I'm untouchable I can't you know ever be given the appearance that I'm flawed or that I do anything wrong and therefore you know hide all of the counterfeits in my life and pose them off as the real uh, and just how easily we can get lost in that trap if we're not careful and if we're not conscious and if we're not allowing ourselves to uh, to basically humble ourselves and recognize like no there's there's something better, there's something more honest, there's something more open and truthful. And um, yeah. All, all, yeah, all of, there's all of that. The more you're chatting, the more I'm sitting with the context you're offering, and the more I'm like, the fact that it's the priest who says this is so bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't even mean just in the context of the movie, but if you explode this out thematically to what yeah. you're saying, which is, I mean, I agree with you. There's a thin line between public excoriation for one's transgressions and, you know, complete obscuring. Right. Um, but we have definitely historically leaned far harder into complete obscuring to the detriment and death of relationships and people and integrity and, and you know, yeah. Yeah. people's faith itself, um, all because someone decided they were strong enough to handle it when when it was whispered to them your spouse need never know right um right. you know that's that's it's pretty heavy oh man oh man yeah <laughs> i mean the yeah, I, yeah we're ending on a somewhat uh heavy note but just the the volumes like the the idea that covering up a covering up a thing is better for the sake of the Overall, again, to get back on the Christianese language, hurt your ministry, to not hurt your ministry, like to to cover up a thing. And then what happens? Ultimately, the truth will out, to quote Shakespeare. Um, ultimately, it, it, you know, and to quote the Bible, be sure your sins will find you out. So uh, the, it does get revealed. And what happens when it gets revealed? Now it's doubly so the transgression and the cover-up. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a lot of times in this, culture and climate that we live in even honest and open confession is often met with well too bad now you're done like period Um, and that is its own separate conversation I'm not you know uh, diving into that part right now Um, but triply quadruply more so if you transgress and then notably like hit it and and covered it up like well then it's just then it's just over because there's, I think there's a grid for people, I, this may be naive of me, but I think there's a grid for people to understand, like, people make mistakes and people don't sure. know any better. Sure, uh, Social media challenges that notion of mine every single day, but I think there's a grid for people to recognize you've made a mistake. I think there is far less tolerance for people to say, like, you knowingly made a mistake and then knowingly lied about it. I right. think that's that's different. It hits people differently. I think there would be a tendency, and again, I could be wrong and I could be naive, but I think there would be a tendency for people to be willing to give someone another chance if they're like, uh, like I messed up and like right, I'm just right, coming forward sure. and I just and I just messed up, um, rather than you know the self defense, the the self protection, the the shading, the shadowing, and all the more so. And this uh, maybe this is our final note. All the more so, the responsibility of of us as followers of Christ, uh, to recognize, like, 
No, this this is something that we should be at the forefront of, and that's right. I've 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 said this in different contexts. I feel like on this show before. Um, I've I, I do feel like I've said this on the show before, but like we should lead the way in so many of these other charges on social justice, on you know reconciliation. We should lead the way, and we should lead the way on repentance, like showing people how to publicly and uh and and in full penitence like repent of our transgressions repent of the things and that's the problem is we don't lead the way in we big church we are mm-hmm. just really bad at leading the way in repentance what we present instead is this idea of like well i used to be bad now i'm good right, be good right. with me and that's very different than this notion of like no i'm i am in perhaps a continual state of repentance, of turning away from the things that I'm recognizing and that I'm learning along the way, that I'm learning along the way of, of well, this is, you know, this is not healthy, this is not whole, this is not goodness, well, and, and then and actively repenting from that. Thorn, to your point, I mean, Thorn, and we see this play out in our daily cultural lives, but, you know, time and normalization don't absolve transgression no right you know which uh, you know you're usually the one to make these qualifiers by no means am i saying self-flagellation is the key either it's it's not but right right but there has to be a humility there has to be a a spiritual self-awareness to recognize just because this time period has happened since whatever fill in the blank you know yeah, uh, like right, what right. let's take the let's take the film because you know it's easy to get charged sure elsewise. sure yeah, um you know however long it's been since thorn adopted um you know kind of covertly snuck damien in in the mix I can't remember. Is it five years? Is he six at the end of the movie? But yeah, like, it's, yeah, he's. You know, it's five years ago. Yeah, five years doesn't just absolve that initial error. Now, right, right. By no means. Also, am I saying we make monumentally transgressive mistakes that permanently alter the design of our life? I don't even mean that. I don't think that's true. But you can screw up, and just the time between the screw up and the now doesn't negate the screw up. You know, there's work involved there. Right. Anyway, anyway. Yeah. And, uh, oh man. Okay. So, oh man. Uh, (laughs) One, one, again, I keep, this is like my fourth final note. (laughs) But, um, it reminds me of like, there are so many ways in which we will, you know, hide and cover up and everything to try to sort of salvage what we have. Well, I can't lose everything that I have. Right. Um, and and it it brings me to mind of the scripture that I don't have pulled up, but I'll quote best I can, uh, that, uh, you know, whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. Sure. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And that and notion... Sub, and sub, sub the word career in for life. Okay. Yes, exactly. That you try to salvage and save whatever personal version of empire you've acquired for yourself um, then and and that's why it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because then it's like when you, once you've got all this well then I, I can't I can't give this up I can't lose all of this right but 
that's the thing is like when you are willing to say like, nope, I'm just gonna, this is it. It reminds me of that. Do you remember that? I think we saw it together. Do you remember that movie Flight? Do you remember that movie, the, the old <laughs> Denzel Washington movie? You remember that yeah. movie? Yeah, yeah. We and, did see that together. And, and just that like, there's an element to that film. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but there's an element to that film of, of confession that takes place that is, you know, pretty devastating, but it is a very sort of freeing and liberating component to the story. And it is, it's this, it's this idea of, I continue to try to salvage this thing. And the harder I try to salvage it, it is just destroying me from the inside out. Whereas if I will just open up, bear my spirit and, and be truthful and be honest about these elements that are at play, then maybe I have a chance at finding some hope, some freedom. And I'm not saying neither are you just air all your dirty laundry for everybody. I'm not no saying way. that. No. But, but uh, you know, because some people just don't, I will say this very bluntly, some people just don't deserve your story. But I do think there's a difference between, you know, being willing to be honest with yourself and be honest with those others that would be relevant to hear it uh, and trying to intentionally sort of cover up and hide uh, these things that you know are wrong, these things that you know are are poisoning and destroying you uh, for the sake of some salvaging of an empire, you know, and uh, or some and, and that empire could be wealth, status, position, relationship, whatever it is. Um, yeah, whoever seeks to save his life or save his career will lose it, and whoever's willing to lose it for the Lord's sake will find it. Um, never expected <laughs> any any of this stuff to come in for the for the O man, but um, <laughs> but uh, did you have anything more to to add to that before we we go to the fog meter? Uh, no. Um, so uh, with that little sermonette in mind, we're going to go to the fog meter where we judge these films, uh, these TV series, these whatever they are, um, on a, rake, a rating of fear. And God are very specific measurements. So, uh, first of all, we're going to rank the fear measurement of the omen, the omen. Um, I think there's some pretty harrowing scenes in this, some really effective jump scares, uh, some really effective just dread scares as well. I'm going to give this a seven. Wow. All right. Yeah. I'm going to give it a seven. Um, I think that knowing the nature of the story dampened a little bit, but I mean, I have. A vague memory of going a little slack jawed at the decapitation right yeah. when it happened. Oh, yeah. um, and there's a couple of things there. Um, I'm going to land at a five. Five. Okay. Um, and then what would you give it for the God meter? Um, I think it's clearly playing with our expectations and knowing what you've illuminated about Donner's vantage point on its development period um i think there's a lot there i am going to hedge a little bit and maybe land at a seven okay all right um it's funny that's actually higher than i thought you were going for there uh i'm gonna put it this is a tough one for me because donner's perspective on the film and knowing he directed it kind of kind of dampens me a little bit as well i actually i'm gonna join your seven uh, I'm going to leave it at there because I think there's a lot there. There's some interesting things there, but that it dampens here because I, I actually raised it because of that. Oh, interesting. No, yeah. for for me, it's uh, it, it kind of makes me wonder whether that confuses the narrative or not. Not to pivot us right back into a full, you know, uh, dissection of the film, but uh, but yeah, I think if this were sort of a more 
straightforward narrative one way or another, it would probably raise for me. But the fact that it feels to me like it's presenting such a direct narrative of the Antichrist story and knowing the director sees it differently, I feel like uh, kind of dampens it a bit for me. But I can, I can see that. Um, oh, man. In the spirit, <laughs> in, the, in the spirit of that, uh, this does land The Omen by Richard Donner, um, our final I Love the 70s entry, a 6.5 on the fog meter. Dun, dun, dun. That's not bad. No, it's a pretty good. It's a pretty strong Is showing. That, does that be honest? Does that disappoint you? No, no, it doesn't. I, I think it. I think it feels right for this film. Because uh, it's I hard. It was hard for me to tell. I'm sorry to cut you off there. It's hard no, for me to tell going into this what you anticipated and 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 or how much you liked this movie. I, I didn't know that the answer to that question. Oh, so okay. So this is a. I mean, to to definitively answer it as our recommendation section. This is a film I love. It's a film I enjoy revisiting. Um, it's a it's a franchise in general that I'm fascinated by, but I really do love this first entry. I would highly recommend this film. Uh, I feel like it is very accessible to horror fans, to fans of religious horror specifically. Um, it's very very accessible with just a couple of admittedly jarring and gruesome scenes, um, but they're they're sparse enough throughout the film uh, that I think it's very palatable. And uh, yeah, so so I would highly recommend it. How about how about you? Um, I do recommend it. I wouldn't. At this moment, with one viewing in, I wouldn't highly recommend it. Um, mm. I think it's good. I think it's fine. I think the weight of time and expectation dampened it a little bit for me. Um, I understand that, but you know, not a not. It's uh, by no means a neutral or negative. It's just more like a yeah, worth right. worth worth adding because it's part of the canon. Yeah. Yep. I agree. I agree. Well, that puts this uh, this month of October, guys. Wow. Everybody, happy Halloween, oh, everybody! Oh man, we got it is two more days till Halloween. If you're listening to this on the day of, we hope uh, sincerely from Nathan and myself. We wish you a very safe and a very, very happy Halloween. Uh, send us all the photos that you care to share about uh, what you're celebrating with your family this time around. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Happy Halloween to you, my friend. You and all you of too. your Into the Spider-Verse family. Um, and uh, what are we doing next, Reed? I'm so, excited. Oh, man. So next week, uh, <laughs> it was a series that got very, very highly responded to, and I'm very thankful for that. We're very excited about it. Uh, you're not going to have to wait long for hashtag Speaking in Tongues Part 2, Volume 2. Next week, we are going to be diving in. I will confess, we have not at this point determined which main primary film we're going to be covering. But what you can go ahead and prepare for is the first two episodes of Dark on oh, Netflix yes, I Season 2. So uh, go ahead and dive into Dark Season 2, Episodes 1 and 2. It's a little bit briefer season, but we're going to be covering the first two episodes next week. And we will let you know by social media what the core film is as we dive back into another slightly briefer series on foreign language horror films for Hashtag Speaking in Tongues Volume 2. So that's up next week that's for the exciting. month of November. Very exciting. We're very excited. We hope you're excited. And again, happy Halloween. We will see happy you guys Halloween, here everybody. next week. Uh, thank you again, Nathan, for everything. Thank you, Reed. Have a great week and Halloween. Yes, you as well. Okay. Later. Bye.
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey, and our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can now be found at tpublic.com. Just search for The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.